Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you this morning. My name's Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. And before we read our passages from the Bible this morning, I wanted to give you an important reminder that the memorial service for Donna Simpson will be this coming Saturday. That's October 15th at 10 a.m. And so we hope that many of you can join us at 10 a.m. on Saturday morning, both to remember the wonderful godly life of Donna and also to comfort and encourage Tom and her whole family in this season of grief. So we look forward to seeing you there for that service. Before we read, why don't we also just say a brief word of prayer. Will you join me in a word of prayer? And maybe while I pray, I think their fan is on over here. I could be wrong if someone could just check the fan. So let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for another Sunday morning, God. Another morning to reflect on you and center our hearts on you and worship you. We do just want to acknowledge how grateful we are, God, to be here this morning with another day of life, sitting next to our family members in Christ, God. And we also want to ask you for help. Please help us to reflect and to think about these passages of Scripture this morning. Perhaps calm us down a bit, Lord. Perhaps help us to see how we might apply them to our own lives, uh, Lord. And maybe, Lord, even store them away in our hearts for when we need you to remind us of your words when the time is right. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. How far would you go to follow Jesus? There's a certain amount of my budget that I set aside to give to the Lord. Amount of my income that seems appropriate between me and God to give each paycheck to godly causes. But there's been a handful of times over the course of my life where I've reflected on this money that I give to God and I've sort of thought to myself, you know, maybe I've given enough for the time being to the Lord. This moment usually comes, not surprisingly, when I'm looking at my budget, when I'm staring at a spreadsheet with numbers on it, in particular, when I'm looking at a debt that I owe, that I'm trying to pay off. And I can't help but run the numbers in my head and calculate how long it's going to take me to pay off this debt. And then, of course, my eyes drift down to that line that says giving, and I run the numbers again, and I think about how much quicker I could pay off that debt if I just paused, not stopped, but paused my giving for a time being to get out of debt. The same thought has crossed my head, I must admit, when I'm eyeing uh, uh, an investment opportunity that I find particularly exciting, that I'm investing in, and I think, ooh, what if I could invest this much more just for a while, just to take advantage of this opportunity? And I think those uh, moments that I've had while looking at my budget pose um, a relevant question for all of us, which is, how far should you go to follow Jesus? How much should you be willing to sacrifice, to let go of, 
in life in order to do what you feel Jesus has called you to do? How far should you go to follow Jesus with your money? This is a question that it seems one of Jesus' followers named Judas Iscariot probably wrestled with during the final week of Jesus' life on earth. You see, Judas, he went pretty far to follow Jesus. Like all of the disciples, we have to assume that he left everything to follow Jesus. They seem to have left their careers, their families, and with that, in a family-first culture, probably any hopes of inheritance and possibly even marriage, which was a family-arranged affair. And so we like to sort of single Judas out as a bad guy, but it's also important to remember how much he sacrificed when he left everything, including his money, to follow Jesus, not for a week or two, but for years. And yet after years of following Jesus and missing out on a job and a career, a moment came where, Jesus, where Judas had to ask himself, have I gone far enough? Should I just stop here and cut my losses? Or should I keep going and following Jesus, who I've already left everything for? Let's read about this moment. We'll start here, read a few passages for context that we've already read, then we'll land on the main passage for today. So this one is in Mark 14, and it starts in verse 10. And see how Judas handles this temptation regarding money in verse 10. It says this, <clears throat> Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas, who had gone so far to follow Jesus, apparently decided that after everything, he'd gone quite far enough. And he wanted to make back a little bit of what he'd sacrificed on this long journey to nowhere. And so the author tells us that right before the Last Supper, that's what comes next. The very next thing we read is his final meal with the Twelve. Judas betrays him. The author puts it there, no doubt, to make the Last Supper even more tense. Because in this culture, as Pastor Tim shared with us, when you eat a meal with someone, it communicates trust and friendship. And now we know there's someone sitting there eating a meal with him who's waiting for an opportunity to cash in on him. How far would you go to follow Jesus? when it comes to your money. At the men's retreat, I recently went on and I had a blast. 
It was a very um, refreshing experience with the gentlemen of this church. One of the most powerful moments came when all the men were together in a room, and we were just sharing out loud little snippets of our lives with the Lord, little snippets of our journeys with Christ. And this one, this one gentleman, he stood up and he shared about a time when he had a job and he was married, and presumably his wife and him were, were starting this life together, no kids yet, and he felt that the Lord told him to quit his job. And at first I was like, that's weird. But then he went on to explain, he said, the, the company I was working for was overtly promoting sinful, destructive lifestyles to the world. And he said, I just felt that God was saying, leave. And he said, you might think to yourself, well, before you leave, you get another job. He said, that's not what God was telling me, though. How far would you go to follow Jesus when it comes to your money? Maybe he's not calling you to quit your job. But maybe while you're at work, while you're in the word, while you're in prayer, he puts it on your heart to be more honest in your work. To let go of opportunities where you could make a bigger commission or grow the company where you know it wouldn't be honest. Where you know you'd have to deceive people in the process. Maybe like me, it's when you're eyeing that big debt that you're trying to pay off or investment that you're so excited about that you reconsider that amount that God's put on your heart to give to the Lord. Perhaps it's a debt to a friend as we often help each other out. Maybe someone helps you with a move or some, some important transition in life and you've paid most of it back. But now that the years have gone on, and you took a pause, it's so easy to say, what's a few thousand between old friends? How far would you go to follow Jesus when it comes to your money? And it's not an easy question for us to wrestle with because money makes life a lot better. I know from personal experience, it's a lot easier to sleep at night when you have a little bit of money in the bank than it is to sleep at night when there's not very much room to mess around in terms of your bank account balance and your bills. But of course, we also know that that precious sleep is another thing that Jesus asks us to sacrifice sometimes in the process of following him. You see, the disciples of Jesus, they didn't stay in a resort hotel when they followed Jesus. It seems like they stayed wherever they could stay as they followed their leader from place to place over the years. In fact, one time when someone expressed a desire to follow Jesus, he clarified for them the cost, and this is what he said. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, you're not going to be getting your favorite mattress at night 
in your most comfortable venue if you follow me. You're not going to be guaranteed a full eight hours of beautiful, precious slumber if you follow me. So sure, follow me. But just know, following me, it can impact where you lay your head at night. Something as essential to you as sleep. And we have to acknowledge as well that the disciples undoubtedly, over the years, as they went from place to place and venue to venue, probably missed more than a few hours of sleep for the sake of their master. And they did it. They endured. But there came a night where they had to answer that question on some level. How far are we willing to go to miss sleep in order to follow Jesus? And let's see how this night went. We've read it in our previous studies, but let's review in uh, verse 32 this time of 14. It says this. It says, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. <clears throat> My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Moving to verse 37, it says, Then he returned to his disciples, and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. The disciples who had missed lots of sleep to follow Jesus, perhaps because they'd missed so much sleep to follow Jesus. On this night, when Jesus asked them to keep watch, their response was, yes, yes, we know Jesus, but not tonight. Tonight, let's just sleep. And it's one thing if Jesus hadn't told them how he was feeling. Sometimes your friend is in trouble and needs help, but they don't know how to say it. But Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay awake. Keep watch. Pray. And in the Savior's darkest hour, his greatest moment of need for friendship and for prayer and for support, his disciples slept. How far should you go? How far would you go to follow Jesus if it means even missing something as crucial to life as sleep?
I've led a few short-term mission trips from our church here. And there's this moment that I always dread when I'm leading a trip. And it has nothing to do with the trip. It's the moment when Mark, Pastor Mark Hopper asks me, so Luke, have you arranged for anyone to drive you to the airport yet? And I'm like, you know, on the outside, I'm just like, oh, no, not yet. I'll get to it. But inside, I'm thinking, no, is it that time again? Because I know it means picking up a phone and calling full-grown adults during the holidays who have wives and children and jobs and asking them, hey, how would you like to wake up at 3 a.m. this weekend? I know it's the holidays, but could you, could you drive to church and wait for all of us late stragglers to, to, to pull in? Help us load all of the luggage into a van and then drive us to LAX. You've probably missed out on some sleep in your life. Probably even at times because you felt like it was something Jesus would want you to do. Perhaps you stayed awake with a friend who, who was too heartbroken to sleep. Perhaps you slept next to a friend who was sick so that when they woke up throughout the night to vomit, (laughs) it happened to me, they'd see you there and know they weren't alone. And as we continue to follow Jesus, we, I guess, will continue to wrestle with this question. How far would we go to follow Jesus even if it meant he was asking us to miss, sacrifice, let go of something as basic as our own sleep? Or what if it was worse? What if it wasn't sleep, which we need to survive, but what if it was survival itself? What if Jesus asked us to walk into Danger, physical harm, risk, and maybe even death. When the disciples started following Jesus, it's not clear if they knew that danger and death were on the table. But it couldn't have been long before they figured out that there is danger involved to following Jesus. After all, in Luke's account, before he even calls the disciples, they try to kill Jesus. They try to push him off a cliff. But it's not his time, so he walks right through the crowd. And as they followed him and realized that he was challenging the authority of the authorities, who all the way from chapter 3, they say, want to kill Jesus and are plotting and planning and waiting for their chance, it undoubtedly occurred to them that this might not go smoothly, that we might not wake up one day if we keep following this revolutionary of sorts, the Messiah. And to their credit, they not only followed him, even when he warned them of his suffering and his death, But when he said, you will all fall away on account of me, this was their heartfelt response. 
even if all fall away. I will not fall away. Even if I have to die with you, Jesus. Peter said it, and then they all said it. And yet, as you already know, a night came very soon after those words where those words were put to the test. Let's pick up reading now in verse 53. Verse 53, it says this. It says, they took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests. The elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest where he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. So at this point, the disciples have fled. I didn't read that passage by accident, but there's one disciple here who it says is still in the game, who follows Jesus from a distance. It's Peter. And if that sounds cowardly, well, what he does next isn't cowardly. He follows right into the compound where Jesus has been taken by the soldiers who've arrested him. And he warms himself by the fire there, undoubtedly standing right next to the soldiers who just arrested Jesus. Talk about courage. Talk about sticking to his word to go all the way, even if he has to die with Jesus. Let's see what happens next. We'll pick up reading in verse 66. It says, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't, under, I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. He began to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word that Jesus spoke to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. There he is in the womb of danger, standing next to the fire, seemingly unafraid when he's accused of being with Jesus. And perhaps his instinct, perhaps human nature, perhaps realizing that the same swords of the soldiers who just arrested Jesus are right next to him, he denies it. He moves into the entryway where it's dark. No more fire now. And there in the darkness, this time, it's his accent that gives him away. Was that the second time? I don't want to get confused. No, that's the third time, sorry. The third time, it's his accent that gives him away. But in the entryway, he's accused again. He denies it. 
And by the third time, what does it say? He calls down curses. Some translations say on himself, but that's not what the Greek says. The Greek just says he cursed and swore. And if you look at various scholars' opinions on the Greek, you'll probably find that most of them believe that what the author is trying to say in the most gentle way possible is that Peter cursed Christ. Then the rooster crows, and he remembers the words of Jesus, and he realizes that his fear of shame and arrest and torture have just caused him to do the one thing that surely no follower of Jesus would do, deny him and possibly even curse him. And if you wonder why his weeping is so bitter, maybe it's because he remembers also the words of Jesus in chapter 8, where he says, if you are ashamed of me in this generation, I will be ashamed of you when I return in the glory of my Father. Oh, he fell away and he weeps. <clears throat> How far would you go to follow Jesus if it's dangerous? I read a, a moving account this morning. I was crying in my bedroom of a young man who, after going on a short-term missions trip, felt called to bring the gospel to an unreached people group who were known to be violent towards outsiders. And so what he did next was he spent the next decade of his life preparing to take the gospel to these people. He took a class on linguistics. He read dozens and dozens of books. He got vaccinated against every disease he could possibly give to these natives. The leader of the missions organization that he started working with said, I, have, I never in my life saw a man or woman more prepared for the missions field. Eventually, of course, he, well, after finding that there was no locals trying to reach them, no one he could support, no one he could help, he himself began making trips to this island. He would leave them gifts and food and call to them in their language saying, I love you. And after only a short time of, of doing that, they began shooting arrows at him. And the arrow landed in his waterproof Bible. He said the point of the arrow landed on a passage in, oh, I'm, I'm forgetting the passage. I think it was Isaiah, where God says, I, I am coming, I'm, I, I'm coming to a people who are not seeking me. I'm seeking a people who have not asked for me. You can look up the exact quote, something along those lines. And so he felt this confirmation, and he'd already seen progress. He wrote in his diary that night. As he began to make his plan to approach them again the next day, this time on foot. And he wrote in his diary that night, I'm scared. Oh God, I don't want to die. 
how far would you go to follow Jesus when it puts you at risk, in danger? Now, all of us are not called to international missions to dangerous people or even to short-term missions in every season of life. If we all went, who would send us? But we all are called to follow Jesus, even when the path requires a bit of danger or a lot of danger. Perhaps it's serving the broken in a high crime area that God has called you to. Perhaps it's not even as dangerous as that. Perhaps you've been sensing that God has just been calling you to face the social danger of not being ashamed to belong to him. To not being overcome by the shame that certainly Peter feared of chains and imprisonment in his culture. When you let it be known among maybe your colleagues at work in the most winsome, in the most gentle way that yes, you love Jesus. Perhaps it's the danger of what people would think of you at your family party as you do your best not to be overcome and driven by shame of Christ, but to be filled with courage to follow him, even when it requires suffering, even danger, even death. <clears throat> and so, how far would you go to follow Jesus? We're not going to answer that question this morning <clears throat> by examining Judas. The, the part that the disciples play when they, when they flee, one of them naked, will not answer the question. Even Peter, the most courageous disciple of all, who walked right into the womb of danger, fell away. So if we're going to answer that question, we're going to have to instead examine the life of Jesus. Who knew at dinner that one of the people there was his betrayer and ate with him anyway. Who prayed in the garden, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And when the answer was no, went with, his, with the soldiers who arrested him. And from the man who, when falsely accused in a kangaroo court, had the perfect opportunity to escape scot-free. Let's see what happened in that courtroom. We're going to pick up reading again in verse 53 of chapter 14, and it says this. They took Jesus to the high priests, high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. We'll skip down to verse 55. It says this. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. <clears throat> then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. 
We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another, not made with human hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is the testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. So, Jesus stands before their illegal trial at night against the rules with a verdict that's already been reached before the evidence has been examined. Death. We're going to kill him. Let's just find the excuse. That's not justice. And then they bring their accusers because there's no prosecutor in the Hebrew court. The accusers have to come and to kill him, they need two of them to agree. So they've got plenty of witnesses. Matthew says they bribed them. But the witnesses can't get their stories straight because the stories are lies. And in this system, there's always a cross-examination. And every time they ask more questions, the liars are so obviously liars that even in a crooked court, they can't make it seem just enough to kill him. And so frustrated, high priest simply just abandons the trial and tries to see if he can get them to say something incriminating like they've been trying to do all along. So are you the Messiah? And now, earlier, when they asked him to answer his accusers, he didn't say a word. Why? Because they were breaking all of the scriptures, all of the rules. There was no evidence against him. And so he felt no obligation, it seems, to respond. And of course, Psalms and Isaiah tell us that the Messiah would be led like a lamb to the slaughter, silent. And so he gives no answer. But now, with a separate direct question unrelated to the charges, Jesus answers. In his answer, he says, not only does he confirm that he's the Messiah, but see how he chooses his words? He says, I am, which of course is the name of God. In Exodus chapter 3, when Moses says, what if they ask who sent me to the burning bush? God responds, tell them, I am who I am. That's his name. And Jesus says, I am. Then he quotes from Psalm 110 and Daniel 7. He combines them and gives one answer. Both of those verses refer to the Messiah, a kingly figure who shares, who has divine authority from God to judge 
and to rule. All of that together in their book is far evidence enough for blasphemy. That high priest tears his robes. They cover Jesus' face. They spit on him, hit him, mock him, just as he said they would. And with his face covered, blindfolded, it says in the NIV, he's the only one who can see that he is the judge. And while he's been condemned as guilty in a kangaroo court, he will return, just as the psalm and book he quoted from says, and he will judge those with true justice who are judging him with false justice. And so, how far would you go to follow Jesus? I don't know. But we all should go. As far to follow Jesus as Jesus went to follow the will of the Father. Not taking any of the easy exits, but carrying out the Father's will even to a trial like this, where his answer means spit at, blindfolded, mocked, condemned. And of course, we know from there that it only got worse, that he was then taken and suffered the wrath of hell on the cross for you and for me. And so when we look to Jesus' example, and when we try to follow Jesus all the way, even to the point of death, no matter what it costs, and we fail, like the disciples, like Peter. May we remember that Jesus didn't fail, that he went all the way. And that meant not only being our example, but our sacrifice for sins. There's a touching line at the end of this gospel where after the women take their spices to the tomb and they find it empty, an angel says to them, tell the disciples and Peter that I've he says, tell them that Jesus says, I've gone ahead of them, I'm going ahead of them into Galilee. Isn't that sweet? He says, and Peter. Yes. The one who said, I'll die for you, Jesus. But who didn't yet fully understand that he needed Jesus to die for him. And so there's grace. There's both inspiration, example of how to follow Jesus no matter what. And there's grace and there's forgiveness as we stumble along that path and don't do it perfectly. Will you pray with me? Let's bow our heads and pray. Dear God, thank you again for this morning and this opportunity to think about you and reflect on you, God. We're all at different places in our walk with you. 
God, for so many different reasons. And yet, Lord, we take such comfort in the stories of your disciples. That, Lord, there is grace. There is forgiveness. There is hope. And this morning, we just ask that wherever we're at on that journey of walking with you, that somehow, Lord, this morning, you'd bring us a little bit closer. You would help us to see a little bit more clearly how all of life on this earth isn't compared to one minute, one hour, one day of life with you close by our side. We just ask that as we stand up now to sing some songs and close out our service, Lord, that our, our praise might come from our hearts and it might put a smile on your face as we sing about you and reflect on who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.